talk a little smack while he's walking back. Yeah, I wrote the book. But there's one that lives by the lamp on the nightstand. One that says, don't cuss Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number four of the Show and Go podcast by Post Game Spread. My name is Matt Provo, and I'm very excited for you guys to meet our next guest, Jose Moda. So Jose is from one of the biggest baseball families that you could possibly find. He's a very multidimensional guy, which, as I said, all starts from him being from a big baseball family. So his father, Manny, was a coach with the Dodgers for many decades. His brother, Andy, played in the major leagues and is currently the VP of baseball operations at Wasserman, which is one of the biggest agencies in all sports. And then Jose, who's carved out a long 20-plus year broadcast career, but also played in the major leagues. So I think he is what we really look for when it comes to not just baseball players, but people. He's very quick to defer his accomplishments to his family and his friends and all the people he met along the way. And so that humility really makes him a great interview, and I'm very excited for everybody to to listen. And as I said, thank you very much for, for tuning in. I really appreciate it. This is episode number four of many, many more to come. We're going to have many more baseball personalities who you will all be sure to enjoy. So without further ado, here is Jose Moda. All right, and today's guest is Jose Moda, who grew up in one of the biggest baseball families. So we're very glad to have you, Jose. Thank you very much for taking the time today. Well, Matt, it's uh, my honor to be here with you, and I appreciate you taking the interest and in, uh, having me on your show. I'm very excited. Obviously, Jose, big name in baseball, just the Moda family in general. Reading up, obviously, I've been, you know, growing up as a kid, watching Angels broadcasts, now watching Dodgers broadcasts. Was it always baseball for you growing up? Well, man, you're watching the, the Angels broadcast. I, that just makes me feel very old. <laughs> because I, I'm a year young kid. I'm like, wow, he was watching me for a long time. I was blessed to be there, uh, you know, for 20 years with the Angels, watching pretty much the best stretch they've ever had in their history, in franchise history. And it was just a thrill to be a part of it. Uh, my contributions were not on the field. My contributions were pretty much calling what was happening on the field. Nonetheless, I made some great friends out there and, and just people that are even like like brothers to me, players themselves, people in the, in the front office, uh, management and so forth that, that mean the world to me. But uh, for in terms of baseball, yes, it was always baseball for us. Uh, there's no doubt, you know, growing up in a baseball family, my dad being uh, somebody who was involved in Major League Baseball for 20 years as a player, as a coach, now as an ambassador, as an advisor, you name it. Um, it was always baseball plus the fact that when he was done in his active playing days, when he was done playing in the United States, it was time to go back to baseball in the Dominican Republic. So for us, it was year round, uh, all the way, uh, the baseball in the Dominican, like in Little League, there's no seasons. You just play throughout the year, you know, every Saturday throughout the year you play, um, uh, might take a break here and there for like school finals, but, uh, it, it was truly a blast to be a part of it, be around the people that I grew up around, learning from them, and appreciating pretty much, uh, you know, the job of a baseball player and, and also the many people that are involved and in making sure that, you know, this person, this player is only worried about playing baseball and producing. You were a bat boy for the Dodgers while your father was coaching, correct? Yes, yes. I remember, um, I believe that I had to, I had to turn – 14 or 15 before I could be a ball boy. That was my first assignment, a ball boy, right? So Dodger Stadium used to have a, you know, the big, it still has a big netting behind home plate. And uh, the 
home plate area behind it was quite large. So there was a lot of foul territory behind home plate. And I recall when there was a foul ball hit against that against that netting, man. Oh, you had to sprint, get the ball, and go to the other side if it was like on the other side of home plate and just kneel there for a pitch or two until the yeah, that was over uh, to get back to your spot again. And uh, the rule was, as a ball boy, that because those dugout seats were so unique, I mean, pretty much on the ground where where people could stick their hands out and touch baseballs and play sometimes and felt territory. Um, the rule was if, if there's a foul ball that hit the netting, it came down and anybody touched it, you will have to give the baseball to that fan. So that was part of the rule. It was pretty cool, though, but uh, the experience was just unique because from there, obviously, you've grown to being a, a bat boy. Uh, you, you end up meeting so many other players, a lot of fun exchanges around home plays with the players, especially the visiting players, the catchers, and the umpires, which is pretty unique. I mean, there's a culture that goes on with bat boys that a lot of people don't know about when umpires come to you and ask you, oh, you know, bring me three baseballs. Then they stop you. Like, no, no, don't go anywhere. Hold on. How you doing, son? I mean, Doug Harvey, to me, was just the ultimate of all the umpires that I got a chance to talk to. But I recall Gary Carter when he first saw me. And, you know, rest in peace, one of the nicest human beings ever in a baseball uniform. And he's like, hey, little boy, come here. Give me five. I'm like, what? I'm like, we're in the middle of 50,000 people. And here's Gary Carter asking me to give him five. And then I remember um, Cesar Sedania one time came to warm up the pitcher in between innings because their catcher had made the last out. And back then, you didn't have a bullpen catcher or two or three. It was a catcher and a backup catcher. And sometimes the backup catcher was playing first base, right? Or it was in the bullpen. And since it was an comes out to catch uh, the, the starter between innings, and he goes, hey, I, I got something for you. Give this to your dad. He go, pulls out a piece of paper out of his pocket. He goes, that's the recipe of a chicken that my wife cooked for them in Houston. <laughs> That's I'm too like, funny. Oh my God. Not until you grow up and go, all these things happen with a baseball game and people have no idea that these things are going on. I was a bat boy with the New Hampshire Fisher Cats in double A. What you get into is not all what you what you think originally. Um, as you said, the umpires, the players, and it only this stuff can only happen in baseball. And I think it's a, it's also just the character of the guys and how they are in general. There's so much downtime sometimes between innings or watching a game during foul ball. Sometimes if you're a ball boy, there's no foul balls to retreat for four or five innings, you know? So you have time to look around and uh, watch the game a little bit longer. Obviously, it gave me a chance to learn the game a little bit from a closer uh, point of view because I was so close to home plate. And, and it was pretty unique, uh, very special. And also, I, I'm very thankful to, first of all, my dad because he allowed us a chance to do that. And he pushed for us to do that. Uh, he wanted us, us to have the experience, myself and, and my brother Andy especially. And um, to the Dodgers, I mean, it was just, just a, a family culture. It continues to be as I'm a Dodger now again. Uh, Tommy Lasorda, Walter Alston, all these guys that went through there, the players themselves, the superstar players that just welcomed us as almost as we were part of the team wearing the uniform with them in the clubhouse. And you interact with players today a lot, and you interact with players then in a different role. What do you think the biggest difference is between players back then and players right now? Well, one of the things that uh, you notice right away is right now there's so much information given to them and there's so much that's being spilled out from a specialty level for these players to understand that uh, it's all given to them to make them better. The communication is different too because you don't, you know, if you're explaining to a guy, uh, even in college, that's where I learned like you play straight up, you play slight pull, 
we play off of the field, things like that. And, and it came with these signs. I mean, it was like, hey, just like this. We know what it meant. We know what this meant. Dead pull, straight up, slightly opposite. So things like that were easy. Nowadays, it's like, there's a chart. This is where you stand. This is how many steps you take to get there. This is exactly where you need to stand in the infield or in the outfield. And things like that have changed, uh, obviously, throughout. And, and it's evolution. The game has to, uh, you know, uh, go out there and evolve, right? And another thing, too, was that the coaches, for example, who are not given enough credit uh, at any level to me and are totally and grossly underpaid, most of them, well, nowadays, coaches cannot afford to get there at 2 o'clock for a 7 o'clock game. Back then, it was like coaches first. The athletic training staff came in before them. And then the players started filtering in, right? I mean, now the players are there so early, and there's two or three coaches, and there's multiple cages. Back then, I mean, some centers didn't even have cages. So you had to share sometimes a cage uh, with the opposing team and go across their to use their gym, you use their cage. Um, but now, you, you, if you're a coach, man, you, you have to be there at 11, you know, at noon, just to make sure that you go through all the information that's given and passed to you from the front office to digest it, understand it, and give it to the players in a way in which they can go out there and dissolve it pretty fast and then apply it to the game. That's been the biggest change. Between the white lines, obviously, there's some things where from the 30s to the 50s to the 60s, the game has changed. We know that. But um, the best thing about it is it's still a game that you have to score one more run than the other team. You cannot select in the ninth inning with a bases loaded who hits for you. It's, it's, it has to go right through its cycle. And like basketball and like football, you have to, you know, wait for the guy to come up. And, and, you know, in terms of playing as a team, your number nine guy could be a hero for you for a whole week and carry for a week. Number nine hitter. It doesn't happen in other sports. I mean, you're always going to go to your number one. If you're number one and top guys are not performing, like, oh, the team is going to slump. Baseball is totally different from that because it really does take nine guys to go out there and get the job done. And in roster composition, too, it takes more than 25 or 26 players to win because now with the revolving open door for the minor leagues is one start here, you go to the minors, bring the other guy, and the way the bullpens are used nowadays, uh, I mean, I can go on and on and on and on, but the best thing is between the white lines, there's controversy on you're a purist, do you bond, do you hit and run, do you not, do you give away that out? And I think there's a balance considering uh, that you got to go out there and just play with whatever personnel you have to allow you a chance to win ballgames. I think that there are some players in the modern game who would benefit from taking a few things from the past. You know, and as the name of the podcast is Show and Go, I think some players could benefit. <laughs> some players could benefit yeah. from instead of coming in seven and a half hours early and, you know, instead coming in a little bit later. And I know there were a few players who were with Toronto at the time when I was when I was there where sometimes the pitching coach would go tell them to go play golf instead because they would be there in their own head sitting there the results in the field spoke for themselves so I think a lot of things that have advanced today are are positive but also things from the past we could also we could also take a lesson from oh that's true and I think uh, you know managers through the years have adapted to more to what the front office wants, right? Which is pretty much is dictated by the front office. They hire you and they expect you to carry that log and, and follow the rules, right? And, and follow pretty much the plan they have, which is great. That's just the way the game is today. But I do admire guys like Joe Madden. Joe Madden 
in whatever team he's managed, and he's won, right? He's got a ring. Hey, Chicago, thank you, Joe Madden, Cubs. But Joe Madden would have a week or two during the season where he goes, guys, it is American Legion week. You know what that means? It's 7 o'clock game. You are here at 5 o'clock or 5.30, okay? Whatever else that you need to do, don't come into the clubhouse. Don't come to the clubhouse before 5 or 5.30, which is great for the guys to have more time with their families, number one. As you mentioned, get away from the thinking and overanalyzing and paralyzing from the overanalysis. And really have perspective that is still a game. You're not competing. You know, right now, guys see somebody arriving at, at 1.30. It's like, uh-oh, I'm younger than him. I should not be arriving after him. And that's just the, 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 the natural way of seeing things, right? Um, even the, 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 the buses have changed. It used to be like two buses, hey, one at three, one at four, but nobody goes to the ballpark at four o'clock anymore other than broadcasters. That's it. Um, and those are things that you know, have come through, through the years that we need to you know, get used to and understand, but um, I think sometimes there's way too much to analyze and not react. I remember talking about Frederick Griffin, uh, who was an outstanding infield coach, great baseball man, outstanding short time himself. And, you know, years with the Angels, I said, Alfredo, the instinct is being taken away from these players because now they're being told how to and where to. As in before, you reacted to what you saw in a swing. If a guy was late, how, how also knowing your pitchers as an infielder, where's his fastball today? Hmm, you know what? Today's got a little extra, extra, extra little sink in that fastball. I better play a little bit more pull on my shortstop side because he's not throwing as hard and bats are going to be rolling around the baseball. All those things now, it seems like not everybody, and not, I'm not generalizing, but guys have to be reminded more of that. You know, if a guy that has a little zip in his fastball, well, you got to make an adjustment. As you do the batter's box, uh, guys don't move around the batter's box anymore as they used to to adjust to the guy throwing either harder or slower or with more movement. And these are just things where the game is today that we have to understand. But, you know, it does leave you thinking, what if? Guys were taught more making adjustments on their own and watching the game when you're when you're not playing, when your bat is not up, and just making adjustments and trust that whatever you do is because you studied it, you paid attention, you evaluated it. So a manager or a coach says, "Hey, I saw you doing that. Is that exactly what we want you to do? Well, you explain it right and make it work a couple of times, and before you know it, then you're on your own to do more things in, in freedom. Sometimes you're going to miss because that's just the nature of the beast." But I think the young player needs to trust a little bit more in, in stealing bases and taking a lead and when to go, when not to go. And learning the game is the essential thing in that. It's that old quote, teach a man to fish, right? I'm not entirely, I don't want to beef up the quote on the podcast, but we know where it's going, right? And then I think if you teach the instinctual nature of the game at the lower levels, players are going to more apt to, one, have their natural athleticism on display, and two, feel more comfortable yes. out there and, and trust themselves. And those yes, are some yes. things that you need in baseball. It's not a game where you can be rigid, and we don't it's want to teach repetitious. that. It's repetitious, man. I mean, the, 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 the best teacher besides my dad that taught me the nuts and bolts of baseball, right? But the best in-game teacher I've ever had is my coach, Augie Garrido at Cal State Fullerton, because it was beyond the – the, the mechanics of the game or it was just understanding and giving you the responsibility to learn the game on your own. And I recall that almost like a, like a, like a threshold to me was 
almost that feeling of I made it as a college player is the second fall season, which is in 1984 for me. Um, There's game situations. Obviously, I was a guy that put the ball in play. I needed to run. I needed to you know, make things happen and handle the bat well, right? But I remember there was a time in the fall when maybe halfway through the fall, we got like first and second, nobody out. And Augie comes to me and says, come here before I go up to the under circle. What would you want to do here? I'm like, whoa, me? You're the coach. He goes, no, what would you want to do here? You want to bunt him over? You want to take a pitch? Would you like a double steal for them? You just let me know what you want to do and we'll do it. And to me, that was like an arriving point of going, that's giving somebody confidence to go, I trust your instinct. And even though nobody's perfect, you're going to miss sometimes. It's almost like encouraging you to do that. You know, even in the big leagues, right? Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols and Tony Lusa. What a unique relationship. And there's been many more beyond that, right? But I'm going to take the example of Albert Pujols will put hit and runs on with St. Louis. He put on the hit and run. And it's like, yeah, that's the way it should be. But now I also understand managers that are going to be questioned by the media and by the front office and go, hey, that play that didn't work, what, where did that come from? That wasn't part of the plan. And that's what a lot of managers and, and players are facing nowadays in terms of making those decisions too. When it came to your college career, we talk about great managers. You're talking about Larusa, great head coaches with Augie Garrido. How did he recruit you to go to Cal State Fullerton? It was very interesting. Uh, long story, but I'll make it short. Uh, as a Dodger kid, right? Dodger Stadium, USC is the predominant school, right? Back in the 70s. And Coach Rod Data was around the ballpark all the time. Good friend of Tom Lasorda, good friend of the organization. He and my dad became good friends. So he was always like uh, around the dugout. Hey, I see the little motor working out. He's going to be he's going to be a Trojan one day. And he's, hey, Tiger, what's going on, Tiger? You know. And in my heart, I was said that I was going to go to USC. Obviously, it didn't happen, but because I had a pretty much uh, a C average. That's the truth. But I I went all through high school in the Dominican Republic. I was not recruited. So as Time will tell. My dad had befriended one of the scouts for the Angels, uh, Larry Himes. And Larry Himes was visiting the Dominican. And Larry goes, uh, Manny, I know that you want Jose to go to the United States to go to college. He goes, I have a very good place that I think you'd be good at. And that's how the Augie Guerrero connection came aboard. Uh, I graduated in 82 in the June. And then I had to do a trial for Augie two days later in Los Angeles after I finished high school in the Dominican, finished my finals, flew to LA to join the family as we did throughout the summers and every summer. And then Augie came to watch me work out at Dodger Stadium. And it was pretty much that. He had never seen me play. He saw me work out. He you know, saw me work out a couple of days. Tommy Lasorda was one of the guys that uh, came out and threw me batting practice and, and hit the ground balls. Mike Sosha was taking throws from me at first base. Fernando Valenzuela, I mean, it's like so unique and, and, and so spoiled, I would say, right? So privileged to say this, but I feel so blessed by that. And then Augie would sit with me in the stands to watch the Dodger game and ask me a bunch of questions about the game. Jose, what's, what's going on here? He wanted to know a little bit more about my knowledge of the game, where I was in that level, because as he told me later, he goes, you know what? I, I trusted in you and your abilities, and, and, I, and I really want that, that breed of Moda to be here with me. But I understand also that you haven't played a lot of baseball. I was playing once a week, maybe twice a week the most in the Dominican because it was school and then baseball was secondary. So he goes, you know, a lot of the kids are going to be playing with starting in the fall, in the fall of 82, 
these guys know each other from from I mean little league. A lot of them in the same communities, junior high, high school competition, travel ball. So for you, it's going to be different. And he made me understand that you're going to be a little bit behind in some things, but don't let your athletic ability be you know intercepted by anything else. And and that was a growing moment for me. But, but pretty much in a pinch, that's the way he recruited me. He goes, I want you to come to my school. Uh, he facilitated things for me to get into school. Uh, eventually, obviously, said you're here to play baseball. But remember, we want you to get that degree. And thanks to Augie and to my family, my wife especially, uh, my brothers and sisters, and my mom and dad. That uh, it wasn't just about going out there and, and playing baseball and getting drafted. It was about getting my education and getting my degree. And thankfully, uh, that all happened. And obviously, as people know, turned into the one of the most successful broadcasting careers, even, you know, as a player broadcaster, everything. Um, that's what a lot of people know. But also, I think a lot of your background in broadcasting is aided by the fact that you spent time in these clubhouses, you spent time with legends of the game, and even with people who might not have made it, but also influenced you. But as far as the minor league aspect of things go, how did that influence you in, in your career today? Well, um, the first thing was my dad pretty much prepared me and my brother to say, hey, once you got into professional baseball, forget about being Manny Moto's son. you got to go out there and get it done yourself. But he already had instilled in us that example of getting to the ballpark early because he was a pinch hitter. He was a 24-25th member on the roster, right? But a very important 24-25th because it was the eighth or ninth inning. It was like, Manny Moto, we need a hit. Let's go get it done, right? But he would get there early. He always treated himself like he was playing every day. He goes, I know that I need to be here earlier than the regular guys because they need the rest. I don't play every day. I need to prepare better. So he would go and simulate games in the batting cage, up the machine, up the Iron Joes. We love the Iron Joes. <laughs> um, and even have us sometimes flip him some baseballs uh, so he can get ready. So that was instilling us. The, the work and, and the time that you have to put in, the sacrifice you have to put in, you know, the, the sacrificing going out and, or hanging out or being social. We understood all that and we were fine with that. But then it came down to the reality of the politics of the game where you grew up in a system where you think, okay, if I do well on this level, I'm going to get moved up and they keep moving up is, and they go, oh, wait a minute, it doesn't work that way. And that's like your first reality check going, oh, wait a minute, hmm. Okay, now I understand more and more about what my dad was saying, or maybe what Tommy Lasorda had told me one time about how the numbers game comes into play. And then you, you really learn the business of baseball. But getting drafted to me was so unique because at that time, I spoke with 15 or 16 different teams that came to my apartment to recruit me and talk to me and do the eye tests and the psychological tests. Uh, and, and I projected high, obviously, going to the second round. And then um, it, it was unique because like, okay, now I'm wearing my own uniform. This is not the Dodger clubhouse anymore. I'm on the buses the way I always dreamed of just earning it on my own. And that was the best thing that my dad, my brothers and sisters, they all were pushing for us to make it, to go out there and, and perform. And then it was pretty much on your own, your own paycheck. Uh, in terms of cooking or like laundry, we had done that way before. So that was not like a shock or anything like that. Um, but now managing money, obviously, um, uh, my mom was quite influential in that and, and saying, Hey, uh, forget that new car or any other new stuff, go out there and get yourself a property. So I did at age 20, got myself a property and that money is still rolling around. Thank God. So those are things that you understand. And then the teammates and playing the game and understanding that the professional game is so different, right? Um, 
even in, in college in the fall games, I would use wood bats. And sometimes Augie would be upset with me, like, Jose, you're not going to be using that bat during the season. I'm like, yeah, but I'm thinking beyond the season sometimes. I'm, and I use a lot of wood, wooden bats in the fall. And then the teammates and the camaraderie where you create, you see guys getting moved up. You guys, you see guys getting uh, released, which is so sad because it's like dreams ending right away in front of you. You see guys that you play with two or three years later, like he's in the big leagues. I played with him, so that means that I can make it, right? And this, the unique stories that just develop all throughout our friendships, friendships that I still have because of the grind. And more than anything, it's the grind, uh, the struggles that you learn from that allow you to just connect with people at a level where you never expected. And just you have a common bond of sometimes you make it, sometimes other guys didn't make it. Um, and just the, the the piece that you feel when you get moved up is not like, oh, I got promoted, not because I'm Manny's son. I earned this now. I'm, I've got to continue to go out and do that. And, I mean, I can go on and on and, and write a book about it, but uh, professional baseball is definitely a different monster that's changed a lot uh, through the years because now I recall that, you know, I signed for, like, my total package was like $85,000, which is, like, a lot of money back then, 1985, right? But now guys are getting <laughs> – the plethora of money they're getting is like, wow, if you – Get hurt your first day of spring training, you're set for life, and you don't worry about it, right? And of you can tell based on how many people, all the packages in their locker. Oh, when you my walk, God. You walk oh, in. Oh, you know what? I'll tell you a story. Even though I had connections with big league players and stuff like that when I was playing, I got to the big leagues in 1991, and I had two pairs of shoes, two pairs of cleats. And if you look at my Padres debut, because I played in Vegas, and in Vegas in 19... 91, I had to paint. 1990, I was in Vegas, and 91 also. But in 1990, the uniforms were the black, the the um, the brown uniforms that the Padres used. So I had brown cleats. So for the 91 season, I had to paint and polish my brown sheets, my brown shoes into black. And when I got promoted to the big leagues, I'm actually wearing black shoes with the Padres that were previously brown. So. It's not like I had a you know a ton of boxes waiting for me there, but uh, we always always kind of appreciated what we had. We didn't bother my dad like, Dad, please send me this. Please send me. We needed to earn it to understand exactly what other guys go through too. So you appreciate it a little bit more. Totally. What was your first welcome to the show moment? Um, very easy. When I got to Houston in the Astrodome, and my name had been called. I was in Vegas that morning. Um, I get the call, I get to Houston, I get to the Astrodome, and boom, I see my locker, Moda 15, and I see my jersey hanging there in the, in the Padre Gray and, and Navy Blue, and I was like, wow, okay, this is it. Now is not, I'm not a bad boy anymore. I'm not a ball boy anymore. I'm not Manny's kid. I earned this as a player when I really started looking around going, what am I doing here with like Tony Gwynn and Fred McGriff and Benito Santiago, I'm like, what the heck is going on? But that was my moment of going, thank you, God. I made it. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. But, yeah, there's a number 15 with my last name on it that says I made it to the big leagues. You look at the rosters from when you played in, in 91 and 95 at the Royals, too. You see a lot of names that are either recently involved or still involved in the game or left a big impact. How is being around those guys, and as we transition into your time as a broadcaster, which is still going on today, of course, 
How did those guys influence you in your in your in your major league career as a player and even now as a broadcaster? You know, in, in clubhouses, I um, I try to lead by example. I was not a guy that was very vocal. Um, with some guys, I was. I could pull them aside and say, "Hey, you know what? We need to do a better job of doing this and doing that." Especially for the young Latin players or, or other Latin guys, that I didn't, just did not want to see them get into trouble for stupid stuff that sometimes they had no idea that they were exposed to, right? And um, I saw how my dad treated some of these guys too when he was, you know, a player and a coach, and just guiding these guys through and, and teaching them and explain to them some things that were different culturally here in the U.S. Every player that I play with, uh, anybody I came across, I always ask questions. I was quiet. I was observant. Um, my faith allowed me to just go out there and, and just be respectful of everybody. But, man, I was when I was with the Royals, I'm with Mark Gugaza, who was like the team leader. He was the, Gooby was the guy in Kansas City, okay? George had retired, but Gooby and, and Jeff Montgomery were the guys. And then to work with Gooby as a broadcaster, it was like unreal to me. We like pinch ourselves. We called each other wingman. Like, hey, wingman, what's going on? You know. Um, but he was a leader there. And when I came up in 95, Gooby was very accepting of me and uh, my family uh, in Kansas City. But, you know, go back and look at like Chico Lean and go back and look at Montgomery. And as I said, and McFarlane, uh, George Brett was around the team all the time as a coach and as an, as an advisor. But also Bob Boone was, he was very influential in me and my life, my career. And I told Bob Boone because I made it to the big leagues in 91 briefly with the Padres. Then I had to wait four more years <laughs> for grinding years. And I'm like, man, this is going to happen again. But when I go come up in 95, Bob Boone had told me in spring training, listen, you're a good player. I want you on my team. There's no room right now, but believe me that when the opportunity comes, you will be in the big leagues with me because you can play. I had not heard that from a big league manager ever, you know, to say, hey, you can really play. You can help him, okay? It was like, oh, man, that's so refreshing to hear, right? And to me, those, those words always stuck with me from Bob Boone, a guy that I admired growing up. And one of those guys that I had exchanges with at home plate as a ball boy. It was so incredible, right? And I remember when the season ended, I um, I ended up getting hurt. I, I hurt my girl. And I told my girl in, in the big leagues, thankfully. And I remember, like, the next year telling Bob Boone, Bob, you know what? Because of you, I was able to buy a house for my family. Thank you for your trust and for bringing me to the big leagues because with the money that I saved, for half a year of my big league salary, I was able to buy a house for my family, my wife, and my, my son, and my daughter to live in. And he's like, Jose, you earned it. I didn't give it to you. I saw your numbers in the minor leagues. He goes, I still cannot understand why somebody like you, so versatile, was not in the big league before. He goes, but you, you're taking the right path and you do it the right way. And um, I said, you know, if I had run into you maybe five or six years earlier, I probably would have had a longer career, but it was all God's plan. But he was truly still like an uncle to me and uh this mega star bot boom that i saw with the Phillies uniform the stripes and and the baby blues and, and he's my manager now and one of the great communicators smart guy uh but he, he's he's definitely an impact with me and along with so many other minor league managers that um pretty much forged in me what i needed to do and, and a lot of times call me over and say listen we're pushing for you but we don't know what's going on just keep doing your thing and eventually you know the, the bell will ring and um uh, those are things I'll never forget. It, you know, the players that I played, the preparation, uh, the Wally Joyner's of the world. I'm like, Wally Joyner, jeez, look at this guy. How natural it comes to him. Uh, so many, so many, 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 many other players that I just go back and look and say, well, I was lucky to do that, play with them. 
learn from them. And now applying for the baseball broadcast world, obviously, it goes back to being a kid with the Dodgers, being around Ben Skelly and Jaime Harin uh, and Jack Buck and Harry Carey. I would go and Joe Garagiola and then, you know, Tom Brenneman and Marty Brenneman. I grew up all, all these guys because when I got done working out, I would go up to the booth, sit in Vinny's lap and listen to the game and have Vinny call the game. Uh, and Jaime, Jaime Harin, too. And then I would visit, and my dad would make sure that I, I would learn and go visit the other booths, too. That's why I got to learn from the other guys that visited. And that's why I became close to a lot of their kids, like, you know, Joe Buck and, and company, to just because we always had that connection. And then from the Dodgers' side, Darren Sun becomes a broadcaster in the big leagues. Ryan LaFever becomes a big league broadcaster and so forth. Uh, it's, it's, it's been quite a nice history trying things along because so many people had an influence on me. Uh, but there's no doubt that uh, I feel very blessed. A lot of guys, they look past their careers too, because you never know, as you said, what's going to happen in your in your baseball career. We knew that you stri- it struck an interest with you when you were very young, but at what point during your baseball career did you think, looking forward, post post playing days, I want to be that guy in the booth? Was there a specific time? Yes, I think um, you know my wife graduated from USC, and she had gotten her degree in. in um, PR and, and journalism. And she was very observant of my ways sometimes. And when she saw an interview with me on TV or, or heard something on the radio, she's like, you know, you have, a, you have a knack for perhaps someday in the future to be a broadcaster. And I remember even when we were young, my brother and I, we would um, inherit from my dad, who did some broadcasting himself when he was a player, we would inherit his old cassette recorders. So my dad had these cassette recorders because he liked to help out the Dunyard broadcast in Spanish. Uh, by lending a hand and interviewing opposing players. As a player, he, he did this because he, he liked it. And then he got invited to do post-game work in the Dominican from their network um, and travel along to uh, the World Series and the playoffs if the Dodgers didn't make it. So he would pass along his old tape, tape recorder, cassette recorders to me and my brother. And we started practicing in the back, backyard and talking and, and playing around and this and that. And before you know it, um, my wife's like, perhaps you should pursue that. And my degree... I finished my degree while I was still playing in the minor leagues. So it was, it was pretty much a combination of, I had a perspective of getting to the big leagues, staying in the big leagues, but I was always prepared to what if it didn't happen? What am I going to do? Um, I didn't want to really go right into the, the, the streamline of becoming a coach, which I could have done. I have many opportunities to do so, even at the college level. But I'm like, no, if I'm going to get a degree, it's because I like doing what I do. And it's going to be about, radio or TV and broadcast. Because also when a lot of the media personnel showed up around, especially like AA, Tulsa, and then Oklahoma City, Omaha, even Kansas City or San Diego, when they would interview me, a lot of them would actually give me a little feedback and go, you know what, Jose, when you retire, you should probably look into this. And the more I heard it, you know, the first time he's like, you're like, oh, you're so nice. Thank you for saying that. They keep hearing over and over again. And I kept telling my wife that she goes, they're right. Now you got to just go out there and put your head to it. Obviously, you're not going to be a finished product right away, but it's something that I put my head to it. I said, I, I graduated in communication. I wanted to learn more about the business of from the inside, from the technology side of things uh, to the logistical side of things. And, but being a good journalist to me became important. I learned that in school by watching. I, was, I used to record interviews, I mean, countless interviews throughout the night in my minor league career, and I would carry a VCR with me on the road. 
to watch his interviews, to record the Sports Center, uh, all these things that I did, you know, throughout the year that sometimes I didn't know what it was building up to. And here we are. It was leading up to this one thing that uh, I now call work, which really doesn't feel like work, and for which, again, uh, I, I thank God for the opportunities that I have gotten in Spanish and in English. And when they say it to you the first time, you're like, yeah, okay. But when multiple people say it to you, you have to think, okay, they're not just saying this to everybody. That led me to me asking them, saying, hey, okay, so why don't I go with you in an assignment in an office? And I started doing that and asking wow. some of the reporters, hey, can I go with you to maybe a high school game? And I, I want to see what you do and how you do it. Uh, and then here in L.A., I mean, we had like Stu Nahan and Jim Hill and, and so many great broadcasters through and, and reporters and sports anchors that I was like, at Arnold, I was like, these guys are icons. They know me since I was like nine or 10 years old. I should be going out there and asking questions. And eventually that led to me having an internship while I was still playing with KNBC4 here in LA with Fred Rogan, one of the guys that I, I mean, still in the air, but one of the guys that would come and visit and interview my dad. So it was like, you know, like a line of things, but where I need, I need to knock on the door but the, the doors were there open. I just need to go out there and push a little bit more and prepare myself good enough so when the opportunity came, be ready and run with it. So the opportunities came, and thank God, uh, especially I told because of my wife. She's like, hey, I studied it. I graduated. And this is what you need to do, and this is what you need to read, and this is what you need to be looking at, and so forth. And we always had a joke about, like, okay, you're watching this broadcast, broadcast right now, right? TV broadcast. Who do you want to be like and who do you not want to be like? And I'm not going to mention any names, but I was like, I don't want to be like that guy. I like to be like this guy and more like the overall, the overall presentation. And beyond that, then came the challenge of do I do it in Spanish or do I do it in English? And uh, my, my wife came up with the idea, why not do both? And here we are. Here we are. So when it comes to the game of baseball, as we said, it's about relationships, but the relationships change when you become a broadcaster because you have to be allowed to, to critique and to talk about the game in an objective fashion, which of course you've, you did for 20 plus years with the angels and you're doing with the Dodgers as well. How was that transition transitioning from being, you know, in the clubhouse with them to somebody who has to might talk about them in a, in a negative way. I actually went to former players and I remember Buck Martinez was one of the guys I went to and I really admired him when he was doing his, his uh, ESPN stuff. I asked him how he made the transition and, and how smooth or maybe how not, how not was smooth for him. Um, Hawk Carlson, you know, people like that, that I, Steve Stone, that I also admired, uh, Dwayne Stats, I remember that. And I just asked the question, okay, so now you're dealing with somebody that you played with that is on the field still, you're not, and he just made a bonehead play. What do you do? But you call them as it is. And, and, if, and if he's your friend, considers you a friend, he'll understand that the way you say it is more important than what you say. Because I can critique a player, no problem. But I have to be fair in the way I say it. There's no personal agenda in making sure that a player, a friend, a family member um, hears it in, in a tone in which you're you know, making a guy look bad or worse, right? And you have to understand that. But the one thing I understand too is and Vince Skelly taught me this. Vince Skelly was friends with every single player, pretty much, in Brooklyn. And he never hit it. And when it came down to saying the truth, you say the truth. But to do it in a way which is respectful, and you move on because you were there before, too. Remember, Vince Skelly told me this, too, going, hey, I never dropped a pop-up 
because it got lost in the sun. Nobody ever broke a double play with me at second base. You know why? I didn't live it. But you did. Make sure you explain it the right way and tell people what happened. There's a why for everything. I never got caught trying to steal because I didn't play at that level. So those things you start thinking about going, okay. And I can tell you that through my career in broadcasting, I see the good and the bad, but I know I've, I've been there too. I've done the bad things on the game. I've made errors. I've made mistakes, costly mistakes, bad decisions on the field. And I have to relate it really ideally and relative to where they are in the game without hiding away from it. There's one thing that is to not mention it, but I always make sure I mention it, but I don't hammer it because there's no need to, unless you have a personal thing in which I think is a wrong thing to do as a broadcaster. You got to move on, present it right, be a journalist. And that's where you learn. Be a journalist, move on with it because you do want to go in that clubhouse the next day or the next week. And if I'm doing a national game, which obviously I enjoy doing too, is I want to go and see a guy from Cincinnati that might have made an error that I talked about or maybe took a pitch that I thought he should have driven a different way or, or approached a different way. But it's the way you do it. And players through the years, thankfully, have never come to me and say, well, I don't appreciate that. Maybe at the moment they didn't like it because I brought it up and I'm watching the game from a different perspective, but they understand also where I'm coming from. And it's never hurt a player or their families. Remember, their families are the ones that are going out there listening and saying, hey, this guy said this about you, good or bad. And I can tell you that my encounters with families from wives to parents to kids to uncles to sisters has been always a good one because I think I understand that the perspective I bring, it goes beyond just the player, but more on the human side too. I think it's evident in how you handled that by your relationship with Vladimir Guerrero and the day of his Hall of Fame induction. How did that come to be? And would you mind giving us a little insight into how you got up there? And, and as a broadcaster, which, I mean, you have the perspective as a player, you have the perspective as a broadcaster. How did that all come together? Interesting, because Vladi, when he arrived here in the Angels, he is a guy that's very shy of the media. And sometimes he was mistreated or even portrayed in a, in a very negative way. People almost got downgrading him or his intelligence going, this guy's just not very bright. He doesn't. I came to understand because I'm from the country and I went all through high school in the Dominican. I grew up in the Dominican. Okay. I lived the culture. We lived in a nice neighborhood, but we also had a chance because of my parents' upbringing, where they came from, to go and visit those places and interact with people that came from different backgrounds. Well, that gave me just a different perspective on where guys come from and how they, are, they handle things in different ways. And with Vladi, to make it quick, when he came to the Angels, I was a translator. My responsibilities were Spanish radio, some English TV, and right away I had to go down to the clubhouse when they wanted to talk to him. Pre-game, if Vladi had a feature interview, I was there with him. And then it came Bartolo Colon and Eric Ibar and, and just a plethora of guys that came through that I became the automatic, by default, translator. Great. I loved it. Now, jokingly, one day I go, hey, hey, you're going to go to the Hall of Fame? He goes, nah, not Hall of Fame. He goes, but if I go, would you go with me? I go, what do you mean? Would you be my interpreter? I'm like, yeah, okay, okay. And then, man, things got serious. And I'm like, this is really happening. And I go, Vladi, I go, Vladi, remember what you asked me, like, I don't know, 10 years ago about becoming your you know, translator in the Hall of Fame? And you still want to translate? He goes, yeah, it's going to be you. Are you okay with that? He goes, I do remember that. And I was like, wow. And it happened. 
one thing that also I, I was behind the scenes, a lot of the things that he had to deal with to get there. And uh, the Hall of Fame is this, they, they're so good at what they do. Uh, they're so detailed. Um, it's such a classy way in which they, they carry themselves all the way from its fourth, all the way down. And for Vladi and handling the family and the logistics and all that was just so, so unique to be behind the scenes. So many things we had to keep quiet. But when they asked me to come up with him as a translator, and I became the first translator ever in the history of the Hall of Fame, for which I'm very thankful, I didn't want the spotlight on me. And they said, okay, when Vladi comes up, we want you to come next to him and stand right next to him on the podium. And I said, no, no, that's not my spot. That's his spot. It is his light to shine and not me standing next to him because that carries forever. And it's not my spot. So I said, let's find a way in which you can still hear my voice. He feels comfortable because I am there. We rehearsed this and, and the pre-parties and all that kind of stuff. And they said, no, no, we just, because this is so unique and you're the first one, we want you to come dressed as if you're going into the Hall of Fame too. And you're going to be part of the whole scenario from the minute he arrives until he leaves Cooperstown. So we're going to have a spot for you next to him, but on the side of the stage. And I said, you know what? You can even put a black cover and I don't need to be seen. They're like, no, you need to be seen. But I was, I was very determined to make sure that I was not part of the story and any of the pictures of Vladi, you're not going to see any, which is my choice. They allow me to do it if I wanted to, but I go, no, it's not, you know, in social media nowadays, I go, oh, look at me. No, it's not my spot. It's his. But thankfully it worked out nicely where we rehearsed a few things. Um, there were a lot of things that he just couldn't get out. And we respect the fact that Vladi's not a big talker, never was. And uh, it was just a great moment for myself, my family, for Vladi, for the Dominican people and the many Thousands of Dominicans that were there that day on a beautiful day in Cooperstown with great company, too. And Chipper Jones and, and Hoffy and, and, and Jim Tolmy and things like that. So it, it was great. Al, you know, Alan Trammell, and it just, Norris was there and, and just uh, very unique to talk to these guys around the scenes and be able to, be able to interact. And then, then they're welcoming the, the old guys here with the guys coming in, which is so unique. Having worked with Junior in the clubhouse in New Hampshire, it's the same thing as you're talking about with the Moda family and as you're, you know, in your tradition and every other family in baseball where there's a different level of feel that comes with being in the clubhouse as early as you were, as early as, as Junior was. Um, and it really, I can tell you, it's, it's, it's incredible to see how they pass along that baseball tradition in, in a very respectful way. Going to 2024, you have Shohei Otani back. Beyond, you know, Everything else, is there one thing you're particularly looking for in uh, this your third season with the Dodgers, correct? Yes, third season. What are you looking forward I'm to looking the most? For, I'm looking forward to the Dodgers getting beyond uh, the first round of the playoffs, <laughs> really. Truly, the expectations really haven't changed. I mean, if people talk about Yamamoto and, and Glass now and now Paxton and, and, and Otani and Margot and Teoscar, the expectations have not changed. The Dodgers are an organization global icon globally recognized that has a standard set for them has been through the years to be the last team standing at the last out and be winners that hasn't changed of course the eyes are more on the dodgers because they've invested they may 
But uh, with all these additions, they still need to get it done on the field. There's nothing given. Nobody wins the offseason. No, I haven't seen a flag or a pennant yet because you won the, the offseason. It's about getting it done on the field. But nonetheless, for the talent they have, the way they're managed, and the way they're run, the fan base is absolutely amazing, which I know as a kid, right, and as a son. But um, what they do here with this machine is so well-oiled that uh, players come here and just say, play baseball, have a great time. And, uh, you know, and there were stars here before, you know, before Otani and, and, you know, Freddie Freeman and Will Smith, uh, Mookie Betts and, and Max Muncy and company. Now it's just uh, complemented nicely because now the starting rotation looks a little bit deeper. And um, you have confidence in the fact that uh, your, your, your shortcomings in the previous postseason came because of the offensive side more than anything. You know, the pitching wasn't great, but I think some things have been addressed where you got to go out there and, and go through a regular season, get through healthy, and go into October with a lot of hunger and make adjustments that you need to make because uh, the expectations and, and people they were thirst for way more than just the first round of the playoffs. Baseball is a funny way of evening out, too, when it comes to other teams and injuries and things like that throughout the season that people should not be up in arms about the Dodgers doing what they do because that is all they can do right is is have a solid framework going into the season and, and let the season play out and i think too they have a lot of character guys which is of utmost importance in this game and which which you know very well having you know been born and raised in a clubhouse so jose we all really appreciate your time thank you so much we this is the longest episode we've had yet and i am very grateful because i mean stories that could go on forever and who knows we'd love to have you back soon as well so once again, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And best of luck this season. We're all looking forward to hearing you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for your time. And for the youngsters out there, keep hoping, keep striving. And as somebody told me a long time ago, no limits. Somebody told me one time that doing Spanish and English was not going to be possible. Look at my example. You know, humbly, I'll tell you that it is possible. Go out there and just don't put any limits on yourself. Keep striving, have faith, and know that uh, you have to surround yourself with the right people to push you, to challenge you, and to make you better. Take care. Thank you, Jose. Huge thank you to Jose Moda of the Dodgers broadcast team for joining me on episode number four of the Show and Go podcast. Please make sure to rate five stars, follow, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening, just so you never miss an episode. Once again, my name is Matt Provo. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.